Hey everyone, you're listening to The Vent Podcast, your source for market insights, wine industry news, and updates on our current collections. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Vent Podcast. My name is Brady. I lead investor relations at Vent, and I'm joined as always by Billy, um, who is our head of wine. We're excited to um, dive into another episode of the podcast today, and especially excited because our Glen Farkless Pagoda collection sold out in less than two hours this past Wednesday. It was an awesome collection. I'm adding another whiskey collection for our investors, and we're excited to review that today. And as well, towards the end of this episode, we have Dylan from Alton Insights. Um, Dylan is the head of research at Alton Insights, which is a leading um, provider of data and analysis, and also portfolio tracking for the Alt investment community. So, Billy, why don't we dive in and, and talk about our Glen Farkless Pagoda collection? That was a really awesome series that we were able to offer to investors, and we had a really exciting sellout on Wednesday. Yeah, really, really exciting uh, times getting back into it. I've been here for about a year working with the team, our first collection obviously launching in May. And back then, collections were, were small and, and sold out, sometimes under an hour, sometimes a little more. But we haven't had a collection in a while, sell out in less than two hours. And this is our first one over um, $100,000 to sell out in less than, you know, three hours. So that it's really exciting as just showing the quality of the assets that we're bringing in, but also the, the demand and interest from our community. So we could dive in here a little bit more, but it's just really exciting. I just wanted to let everybody know how much hard work it went on behind the scenes for our team to really get this up. And our, our tech team got it got a beautiful collections kind of overview page ready right before the launch of this collection, which I think actually helped go a long way and in, in sell out. So a shout out to the tech team as well. Diving in here though, yeah, this was such a, a unique collection, uh, the, the Glenn Farkless Pagoda series, because the, the whiskeys themselves were so old, 43 to 63 years old, but the packaging also was just super, super detailed, super intricate and super basically luxe. It's really targeting this high-end whiskey consumer and it has, you know, the rubies and the sapphires on two of them and it has silver lining on or silver writing on, you know, all the series. So it, it was really exciting. And I think if, if you want to get a little more of a sense of why this collection was so special, you should check out our YouTube. We'll link in the description of this podcast, but check out our YouTube and our interview with Mark Littler. We kind of go over what the difference is between different types of collectible whiskeys. And sometimes it's the age of the whiskey alone. Sometimes it's special packaging and the whiskey is not old. But this collection was able to combine the best of and the most collectible features of any whiskey, really, with providing really high-end producer, really old whiskey, and really nuanced, detailed, and luxurious packaging, making this a really exciting offer and combine all of that with scarcity. There's not any full collections for sale right now in the market, and we were able to acquire this at a, at a great price. So it, this is at a, a perfect storm of a collection for us. And, and our whiskey offerings always bring new users to our community. It kind of seems that... Whoa. Whiskey, just because of kind of the day it's having in the broader consumer market, it really catches a lot of people's eyes and people come for the whiskey and stay for the wine and sometimes vice versa. So we've seen a lot of great growth on our platform as well. And we've seen our community just really excited about the mix of assets, right? 
and the diversification is available on our platform right now. As we said in the past, about 20% of our collections will, for the time being, stay in whiskey. And so I think just provides a, a lot of opportunity for people to dip their toes into more and more unique collections as, as they stay on the platform. And to your point, this is something that we've been really working on too, is offering or having multiple offerings available for our investors that at any point in time, because we have seen people come, maybe they're drawn in by whiskey, maybe they're drawn in by certain certain Bordeaux wines. And then they are really excited by the opportunity to diversify across different different regions. We, we saw people coming for Rosé Champagne and then also investing in our Piemonte collection. So it, it's been really exciting. And, and, and to your point, do you want to tell us a little, like a little bit of a kind of, I guess, an anecdote with uh, an investor noting that uh, diversification opportunity? Yes, I spoke with an investor just recently who inquired about our platform and, and is looking to uh, begin investing more and more with us. And just mentioned that there were two collections that seemed like they had taken a little bit more time to sell out on our platform. And as we were discussing that, um, you know, we were discussing our 2010 decade collection and our Piemonte collection, which are still live on the platform right now. And I just noted that, you know, these are two really awesome collections to have live on the platform at one time, especially when new users come to the platform. One, because the 2010 decade collection provides really excellent diversification, kind of instant exposure to blue chip regions, uh, thinking about having wines from Bordeaux, Burgundy, and then top wines from Spain in that collection. Just a, a really excellent offering to get into right away when you come to the platform. And that investor was also noting the Piemonte collection, how, you know, maybe a lot of people don't aren't familiar with that Northwestern region of Italy and, and the ageability and collectability of the wines that are produced there. But for someone who's coming to the platform and once a little bit of instant blue chip diversification, and then also maybe take a look at an asset class or a category of wine that maybe they aren't as familiar with. The Piemonte collection has had some really excellent historical data as of late, just in terms of how much of the wine market volume in the wine market has been being added to because of Piemonte and the desirability of uh, wines from the Piedmont. You know, I, I think there's two really awesome collections, two really awesome opportunities for new investors to get started right away and have good diversification. So that was just some notes we were having just in discussing with our community. And it, it's cool to see our community recognizing that and getting excited about those assets as well. Yeah. I mean, as as somebody who lovingly puts these collections together and, and not lovingly, you know, I do, there's a lot of research in our our wine advising committee has a lot to do with it, but these collections aren't put together, you know, arbitrarily. So we have, we have that best of decade collection and they really are. It's, it's meant to be blue chip forward, great vintages, um, perfect wines for a foundation for any portfolio. And then Piemonte is, is just like you were saying, it's really emerging. It's becoming, you know, it's right on that cusp of blue chip. It's being compared to Burgundy on a regular basis. There's some of the, the longest lived, smallest production wines in the world that are basically just crafted from these, these very nuanced pieces of terroir up in up in Barolo and Barbaresco. And it's really exciting. And the the world is finally kind of coming to really appreciate them for what they are in terms of a collectible nature. Because before it's just these farmers up in Northwestern Italy, they don't have big marketing machines. They're not on a, a river like Bordeaux is. So their wines aren't easily shipped out to the world. But over the past two plus decades with, you know, the advent of the internet and more marketing and accessibility there, the wines have really started to take off 
globally. And it's exciting. You know, Italy as a whole, just looking at the Italy 100 on LiveX is up 20% over the past year. So momentum is con- continuing for the whole country. But a lot of this, I, I believe at least 40% of that index is made up of Piemonte wines. And it's being driven by these, the Piemonte wines really becoming more available and more accessible. And building on that, the first Piemonte wine ever was included at the Plats de Bordeaux or a release at the Plats de Bordeaux. So for those who don't know, each year Bordeaux is released on Primor while it's still in barrel. And this happens at the Plats de Bordeaux. And over the years, what they've done is they've allowed some of the most famous wines from different regions throughout the world to also release their early futures on the Plats de Bordeaux. So a sign that a region's really making it in terms of notoriety or collectability is when some of their wines start being sold on the Plats de Bordeaux. So with the first Barolo ever being released there, I believe it was a little about a month ago or so, Barolo has now, you know, climbed that ladder. They're they're now in that top tier echelon. And once you get a little bit of a wine or two in the Plats de Bordeaux, you start getting this visibility that you didn't have before. And then it continues to snowball this demand for wines from the region. So we're really excited about Piemonte and and you know we, we're hoping to continue to educate our, our community on why they should be as well. Definitely. And I mean, speaking of education, Billy, there's no one, no one better suited to educate our community than you at this point, having passed another round of your WSET diploma. Why don't you tell our community about that? Yeah. So just recently found out I passed the uh, WSET diploma level two which basically is the business wine business exam. Uh, it's, it's, you know, an hour long essay basically. And you're, you're sitting there in class and you are not in class in this, in this session and anywhere from a range of questions. So I was asked about Swedish wine law, actually asked about wine investment and then, you know, supply chain about how, how to efficiently bring a wine to market from, from vineyard to shelf. So it, it was a really interesting exam. It really allowed me to pull some of my experience both from working at a producer before and working here at Vent and, and really combine it all in an interesting way. And I'm excited to have that one behind me. And now I start my diploma level three, which is basically wines of the world. It's basically every still wine in the world. Over the next six months, we'll study them. And then that culminates with a blind tasting of 12 wines. And from there, all that's left is a research paper and a fortified and sparkling two two four one fortified and one sparkling exam and we'll we'll be all set on the diploma front assuming i can you know knock on wood pass these upcoming hurdles i mean it's it's not a bad hurdle to have to have to cross when the next session is wines of the world and and tasting the wines of the world so (laughs) i i don't feel too bad for you that's an awesome experience but super proud of of that and you know Hopefully, we'll continue to add more people to our team who are kind of in the WSET track and can continue to add wine knowledge to just the business side of our business. Yeah, well, you hit the nail on the head. There, we're we're privileged to be working in wine, so every every day I get to uh, study things that I thoroughly enjoy and work with things that I enjoy. But like in our in our wine advisory committee, having two MWs and having resources that we can we can speak with and get some guidance is always always a pleasure and. It's making my life easier than it would have been just trying to do it on my own if I worked at like an accounting firm or something Definitely, and just yeah. you know, working away. <laughs> That's right. Well, we have, like we said, a really exciting interview. I think we got some good insights from Dylan from Alton and we're excited to share that with you guys. So here it is and we'll talk next week.
All right. We are here with Dylan Dietrich and Brad Kaleha from Alton Insights today. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Yeah. We've been kind of working loosely with Alton since the, the foundation events. Alton Insights as a whole is kind of basically your go-to source on information or news and background kind of on, on the whole collectible space, really giving some some insights and analysis to collectibles ranging from sports collectibles, obviously touching on wine with Vint, and really just kind of covering the whole whole gamut. So uh, guys, first, could you guys give us a little intro on, you know, kind of what Alton is? And then if we could hear a little bit about how both of you guys made your way to the company, that would be great. Sure. Yeah. So Alton started basically during kind of the first months of lockdown when our founder, Russ, you know, saw that Rally Road was putting out these interesting sports card offerings and um, Otis had come onto the scene and some of these companies were posting, you know, investor relations roles. And so he realized there was kind of this this ecosystem forming and that there was a need for kind of this third party independent source of information and data on the space and on on these types of assets. And so what, what started as, you know, basically a Twitter account two years ago has formed into a a small team with a retail investor facing application featuring data on basically anything you can invest in fractionally from a collectibles perspective. And as part of that, Bradley and I work to kind of put out, you know, research analysis and and content on these types of assets, the markets in which they trade and and in which they, they change hands both fractionally and not. Uh, so really the goal is is just to be this source of information that helps people make smarter investing and collecting decisions when it comes to these types of assets. You know, for me personally, my background uh, comes from kind of the traditional finance and investment world. But while I was there, I wrote a book on the economy that developed to support the hobby of sneaker collecting and sneaker resale and how there are all these really interesting parallels between sneaker resale markets and traditional financial markets. That kind of sent me down the, the markets of things rabbit hole and it ended up being a natural progression to what we do now at Alton. So that's kind of my story. Just diving into a little bit more of the alternative and, and collectible space, you know, sneakers have been kind of becoming more popular in recent years. Baseball cards have been collectible forever. Where did mm-hmm. Alton Insights really start with focusing at the beginning? Was there a certain category or was it really just like the, the full gamut of what was available early pandemic? Yeah, I think it was, you know, coverage of whatever was available. But I think what really drove growth and interest specifically during those months was the explosion in the sports card space. It really coincided in in a very timely way with the way the sports card market exploded and also with kind of the last dance phenomenon that with the Fleer Jordan rookie being kind of one of the big headline cards during that time. And that card also came to fractional markets, you know, shortly thereafter. So there was this Jordan led kind of card and memorabilia craze, which expanded, I think, into other parts of not only the sports market and then the sports market kind of spilled over into other areas that are, are very nostalgia ridden. And I think things have kind of matured across the board since then. But from an Alton point of view, it's really always been about covering essentially any asset class that's offered in the collectible space. And we've been thrilled to see that expand in in so many interesting and fun ways, of course, being one of them. And Dylan, I know that you kind of mentioned these platforms coming into maturity at the front end of the pandemic. How do you see these last two and a half years and the growth of platforms like Rally? as either being able to maintain the current 
interest and hype around these asset classes? Or do you see this kind of as the tip of an iceberg that will continue to grow, but that we've kind of hit a climactic point in terms of the hype around these markets? It's interesting because I think if you were to look at a market like sports cards, just to use it as an example, it feels like fractional is still just an incredibly, incredibly small percentage of activity in that market. Even if you're just looking at the high end, in any given big auction, there could be easily double digit amount of items that are selling for six figures and maybe a fractional marketplace is buying one of those. And so I think both in terms of the percentage of assets and also just the percentage of involvement that you're getting from people who are already collecting in these spaces, it's still really small. So there's a ton of potential to expand, not only in areas where there's already interest, but also there's the huge kind of part of the iceberg, which is a more mainstream population, less less niche Whether or not that happens is to an extent anybody's guess, but I think it's our belief, given what we do, that there is opportunity for a lot more people to become involved in these spaces. There is robust data to suggest that a lot of these asset classes have performed well long-term and and fit well in the scope of a portfolio and the scope of a balance sheet in terms of how they kind of interact with other asset classes. So Certainly, the potential is there to bring more people into this. So it doesn't feel like we've topped out just yet. But you know, the disclaimer: I may be a bit biased. Yeah. Now, I'm with you on that. As somebody who started in the crypto space and and not the early early days, but the earlier days, I feel like whenever I talk about crypto, for example, I always have these rose tinted glasses. Even though I'm very bullish on the underlying fundamentals, it's hard not to be overly optimistic sometimes. And if I could just pop in too, crypto, just because you you mentioned it, it's mm-hmm. such an interesting kind of, I don't know, case study for, I think, a lot of these spaces. You know, They're not apples to apples by any means, but if you think about where crypto was five years ago and how it's kind of come to the forefront of not only retail investors' mindsets, but it's also kind of commanded institutional attention where large financial institutions have been asked about this by clients for so long that they've had really no choice but to build out infrastructure around it. And so there's somewhat of a roadmap there, whether it takes the same exact steps and at the same exact speed, who knows, but there is a blueprint. Yeah. I think on that point, what's interesting to me is I feel like crypto and collectibles are almost coming. They're definitely on a similar roadmap, but they're almost coming to a head, I guess, with the NFT side being like, an example of both of each. But to, to me, what's interesting is crypto, you know, some of these projects are, they're very robust. They're building out like these actual technology platforms that apps and dApps and different things can actually run on, but there's no real long track record. And when it comes to collectibles, there's a track record of these things appreciating in value over an extended period of time, but there's been no way to really invest in them as like a piece. So crypto, you've always been able to get a token. I guess now with this reggae plus stuff coming to the fore and platforms like Vint for wine, or if you have Rally for basically anything else, it's interesting that you can now buy shares of these. And I think that's what's really going to kind of flywheel the collectible space into the more the mainstream. Yeah, it's understandable. And it's the democratization means that you're getting access to the best of the best. And it's the best of the best that generally have the track records that are attractive, or at least where there's kind of the most robust data around it. And so that makes the proposition a lot more attractive. And I think 
The NFT thing in particular is interesting, mainly because I think it's a very natural progression towards collectibles that have stood a longer test of time. You know, I know from Rally's perspective, they've spoken about it a little bit. They've obviously offered some popular NFT projects as securitized offerings. And I think that's brought a lot of NFT enthusiasts onto their platform. But I think the stats on where they go next in terms of other asset classes are really strong, meaning they come for the NFTs, they stay for historical documents or sports memorabilia, whatever it may be. But there's this kind of very intuitive learning progression of like, okay, I like this NFT for XYZ reason, but here's this other asset that, you know, I like it for a lot of the same reasons, but actually the data is much stronger. The the track record is longer and that becomes really interesting. And, and these investors, based on just the experience that I've had kind of managing our community a little bit, talking with investors around the alternative asset space. I mean, I think when we talk about fractional and retail, when we throw around words like that, we mm-hmm. maybe tend to think about less sophisticated investors, but these are extremely sophisticated investors. Some that I've run into. And obviously, Alton building platforms for managing alternative assets, understanding data, keeping data on a portfolio in one place. I've seen all kinds of people in the community throwing out brilliant ideas about how the space can grow. And I've been really impressed just about the investor community around these spaces. Totally agreed. You know, we have a pretty fantastic community uh, that we've built and gotten to know through Alton. And I think there's a real sense of stewardship within the fractional investing community. Like people want it to get better. They want it to get more efficient. They want people in the space to invest smarter and to, to better understand what they're looking at and for their kind of market activity to reflect that so that the market as a whole can progress. I think the passionate folks and that we've met and that we speak to want to see this space grow. They really enjoy it. They think, you know, obviously a rising tide kind of lifts all boats, but there's, you know, opportunity for a lot more people to, you know, avail themselves of, of these assets where maybe they have an informational edge. Maybe they understand comic books really well. Maybe they understand the wine space really well, but to date, they didn't know that those were investable areas and they can kind of go down those rabbit holes of, of learning about them and, you know, uh, applying skill sets that they didn't realize they could apply. So it's a really fun space in that regard. And yeah, to your point, there are a lot of people who have gotten really sharp on this stuff in a short amount of time, or were already sharp and have applied it to this space in a really short amount of time. And so it, it shows you what the potential is for this to grow and for people to get even more sophisticated. And that happens too. I think markets shift less short-term in nature and start thinking long-term, which is the way that a lot of these assets have have performed well. Yeah. To to that point too, the idea of becoming sharp, we had recently the guy behind the Knight Frank wealth report on recently, Andrew Shirley. And it's really interesting to hear their point of view because Knight Frank used to be kind of the go-to source for this collectible information and trends and mainly because they were catering to this wealthy clientele who used to be the main people purchasing and participating in this collectible space. I think now it's interesting to hear these people have become, you know, quote unquote sharp over this short amount of time. But I think through platforms like Reddit or other things, there's always been this like really interesting collector community or people just observing these categories from the outside and not really been able to participate maybe because they don't have access 
maybe for the, the price barrier. And I, I think now it's really interesting to be able to give these people a voice and also to have platforms like you guys, where it's like speaking in kind of layman's terms and introducing people to assets that mainly have been available to a very few people. Have you guys felt that there's been like an education kind of part as well as like purely this is exciting. It's got great returns. Do you feel like there's another education piece under like why some of these assets are so important or so appreciate and value certain ways? Totally. I mean, I think one of the things that has made this space as interesting as it is to newcomers is that there is this opportunity to embrace an intellectual curiosity and learn a new space from kind of front to back. So if somebody knows cars really well, but they've always been kind of like tangentially interested in luxury assets, they can kind of start to understand it via a similar framework. You know, they don't follow the exact same forces, but there's kind of a playbook that they can follow to get up to speed on an asset class to understand what are the drivers of supply and demand for any given category, understand what are the nuances to a category, whether it's, you know, grading, you know, understanding populations, understanding kind of regional demand forces, all of these different things really make it intriguing and different, but it's not getting to know XYZ small cap stock or industrials. It's focusing on passion asset classes. And I think that makes the education component more palatable. And there's also just a, that comes with all of that, a better understanding of market behaviors and and how kind of financial markets operate in the face of either liquidity that's strong or very weak. And what does it mean when there's a lot of volume versus very little? And how does that affect performance? And you know, the different pressures on the bid and ask side of a trade. Like there's the very asset specific knowledge that people are acquiring, but there's also this kind of transferable market knowledge. So that's really cool as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think the point, you made an interesting thing. If you're a car guy, one of my points was if I was a car guy and I've always looked at like a, you know, a vintage, say like Ford, like Shelby Cobra, or I don't, I'm not a big car sure. guy, but say, say I've always, I've known about those. I've read about them. I almost know them inside and out. It's cool now to be able to get access when one of those comes up yes. to invest in. Now I can be like, oh, I've always seen this car. Cool. I can finally own a piece. So it's like, there are these closet experts who've just been waiting for this moment to kind of get in their category at a point they can. That's interesting to me. A hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's one of the differences is this is a space, particularly when the market is more inefficient. It's a space where if you know one of these categories well, like you do have an informational edge and you haven't been able to really apply that in any way up until, you know, the last few years. And so it's like, wow, like a chance to actually express a thesis or, or a view that I have and feel really passionate about in a way that's it can be relatively low risk if it's you know a couple $10 shares or whatever it may be. It's a chance to have skin in the game and feel comfortable with it to the extent that you do have this robust expertise. Yeah, that's so interesting to me. Taking, I guess, a step back here, how do you view wine and whiskey as well in kind of this macro space? From your guys' point of view, how does it kind of sit in the collectibles genre? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Like within the fractional space, there are all these different categories. And sometimes even within categories, 
there's varying levels of risk, right? And I think in most cases, the assets we're talking about, there aren't really underlying cash flows. You're not talking about a, a company where you can discount back cash flows. It's it's really supply and demand, demand driven. And, and in that regard, it is heavily speculative. And I think people always associate speculation with a high amount of risk, which is fair. But I think there are very different ends of the speculation risk spectrum, so to speak. The point I'm kind of arriving at there is with wine and with whiskey, in wine in particular, that's one of the categories in the space where the data is incredibly robust. The track record is is very long. And so it almost sits at kind of a lower end of the risk spectrum relative to relative newcomers. And there's also kind of a, a larger element of very heavy buyers, right? And kind of a large amount of volume in that space, all of which contributes to a market that I think is further along, is is more efficient and more well-developed. And I think that makes it interesting in terms of how it fits into a portfolio. I think there's more work to be done around, especially quantitatively, the different risk profiles of all of these categories and, and how they fit together and how they correlate. But I think wine, much like art, is really interesting in that the track record is long, the data is very strong, but the market's very, very large. And all of those things combine to make it attractive. And a a distinguishing factor that I always bring up with investors when comparing wine and whiskey to other alternative assets is just simply the fact that they're consumables. And Mm -hmm. so there's this added pressure on supply and a unique pressure on bottled wine on demand, given that the physical product improves over time as well, which I think is maybe the only only asset out there. There's also cask whiskey, but where the physical product, even as supply is actively going down, that pressure on demand, given that the physical product is getting better and better with the top wines in the world. And wonder if you had any comments on those assets as consumables and how that changes the way that you think about where they fit into the space. Yeah, I think it's an incredibly fascinating and attractive feature that, like you said, is really, really unique. I think not to come back to NFTs, it's like such a different category, but I think with the kind of advent of NFTs, you're seeing developers with these projects almost trying to find ways to mimic a scarcity and an evolution of supply that happens in wine very naturally. You know, they're they're looking for kind of more artificial ways to to burn supply to make the project or the asset more attractive long term. And there's a reason for that. It's because it's it's something that's worked very well in, in an established asset class like wine. And so I think kind of the, the merit almost speaks for itself. And obviously it's a very difficult feature and attribute to replicate. So it certainly contributes to the appeal of allocating capital there. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. The comparison to burning in the crypto and NFT space, I, I think that that's spot on in terms of seeing other markets respond and, like you said, try and mimic that. I think that's really good insight. Totally. And I think something people across basically every asset class that we cover, you, of course, have to be thinking about supply and how does it change over time? Is Are there threats to supply where you could see it increase significantly? And with wine, because there's this time component as well, it makes it even harder to replicate because there's kind of like a, a ticking kind of shot clock, if you will, where 
you know, you're not really at threat of just seeing supply increase in, in perpetuity as, you know, as with cards, more get printed over time and, and some might surface from forgotten or lost collection. And there's no kind of end bound on how long that can happen for. I guess where I was going to go with this is like, so artificial lack of supply. So I was talking to one of our partners the other day on our whiskey kind of 101, um, getting ready for our Glenn Farkless Pagoda series collection that just went out yesterday. And he was noting how the difference between the series that we just launched with 43 to 63 year old whiskey compared to some other producers coming out with really interesting bottles and limited series, but it's, you know, young whiskey. So basically artificially creating this lack of supply, but not necessarily putting any other nuance in it. Have you seen that across other categories? I know NFTs are a prime example of that as well, where people just artificially create this limited supply and that tends to drive value sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't, but what's your perspective on that? Yeah, it does tend to work. And I think we see it across most asset classes. It's it's kind of been the saving grace of sports cards. There was, In sports cards, there was the junk wax era of the late 80s and the early 90s, where they were just printing massive amounts of cards for the purposes of generating revenue. And that essentially crashed the market because everybody looked up and realized their cards weren't worth anything at all. And so coming out of that, the way the market kind of reset and became healthy again was card companies introduced the idea of limited print runs and yes, artificial scarcity, chase cards. And those have become immensely, immensely popular. And the market is willing to spend huge sums of money on one of one cards or one of a hundred. But you have to build that demand side. You can't just put out a, a limited product and have the sole reason it's valuable be that it's limited. It has to sit in kind of a hierarchy. And coming from the sneaker world, there are lots of limited releases out there with certain brands and certain collaborations and sneaker boutiques that are hyper limited, but that doesn't make them hot resale items. And so there's a certain kind of magic that has to be captured in terms of marketing and positioning and branding to ensure that the demand side is well in excess of the supply. And I think that's something, for example, like a Nike has mastered and there's probably a tremendous amount of data and thought that goes into that. It's really, really hard balance to strike, but a lot of these you know, larger companies have found ways to do it in a productive way. That makes a lot of sense. So moving on, now that so this is is the space is becoming more accessible. There's a lot of these Reg A plus platforms offering the SEC qualified securities like we do for wine. People are doing it for other categories. Do you envision down the line there being a trading platform that's almost where everybody can trade these securities specifically? I think so. It's hard to see kind of a, a future where this space is really successful and, and that's not the case where there's this fragmentation by by marketplace and you're kind of insulated from trading you know assets across marketplaces you know with these in, in your living in this very kind of insulated portal with each one. I think each marketplace in the space as a whole, probably stands to benefit if you kind of knock down the, the borders and have more kind of freely flowing money across assets that have been brought to market by different providers like yourselves who have expertise in sourcing and in curating, you know, offerings that, that make sense and where there's a strong investment thesis. But, you know, the ability to, to more freely trade 
to kind of remove friction because there is a fair bit of friction in the space right now. So I think for the space to grow as a whole, you know, hopefully there is a, a centralized and easy way for people to kind of in in one stop and, and whether it's with one custodian or, or whatever that looks like, but be able to have that, you know, alts, reggae, fractional portfolio where they're able to invest across marketplaces and providers. I think that's a future where if this is going to scale, that that's probably what it looks like. Yeah, I think that makes that makes sense. And I, I look at the NFT space again, or crypto space is kind of like this, this hyper testing area. And you're already seeing a bunch of these different NFT projects or wearables, especially in the gaming side of things, starting to you know allow each of their projects um, items to be used within the other worlds or landscapes. So I, I think this is definitely the future. It'll be interesting to see how it evolves, if that even allows more accessibility, because there are some platforms that are only for accredited investors right now. I wonder if, right. if that platform exists, maybe you could buy and share trades that used to be from accredited. I think there, there are some of these nuances and these legal things that need to be straightened out, but the totally potential is really exciting. Yeah, I think the regulatory environment is always somewhat of a variable and it's dynamic. Like all of this is kind of new in a way and it's probably going to change more over time. And who knows what happens in terms of, you know, determinations around NFTs and if those are viewed as securities or not. The point being, there's probably more changes to come. And so I think there'll have to be some flexibility in, in what the infrastructure looks like around all of that. And that'll probably be complex, but you know, it's an opportunity and it's exciting. And hopefully it all means that the ways that people can deploy capital, get more expansive, get safer. And you know, those two things combined probably lead to, you know, a lot more money flowing into the space. Yeah. We're, we're very much looking forward to a time. <laughs> we're looking forward to that time and continuing to, to spread our gospel. <laughs> Yes. So speaking of the future, where do you guys see Alton kind of continuing to expand? Is it going to be deeper in certain categories, trying to you know, tap into new categories? What are you guys thinking for the future? Yeah. So obviously to date, our focus has been on fractional markets, fractional reg A collectible markets. And that space has expanded considerably, which is great with you know new marketplaces coming online with, with new asset classes, new categories. And we expect that to continue. That being said, I think uh, w- when we think about what the future looks like for us, it's really offering the same robustness of data analytics and research, but not just in the fractional space, expanding kind of beyond that into the, the ways in which people collect, buy and sell the same categories, but when they're, you know, collecting, buying and selling the full asset rather than share. So we would like to be a data provider of repute across the alternative asset landscape, however you choose to allocate capital, whether it's via shares or, or kind of select self-selecting assets and owning them outright. We want to enable investors to make smarter decisions as they build those allocations. So more to come on that front. And, and for the time being, we'll, we'll continue to you know expand our coverage in, in the fractional world. We definitely embrace you know, new entrants into the space, bringing new assets that we haven't seen as much of. So exciting stuff on, on that front and hopefully more to come. That's awesome, Dylan. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I was hoping before we head towards wrapping up that you could share a little bit about your guys' products and how you see those evolving, you know, whatever you can share about how you see those evolving 
in the near future? Of course. Yeah. So right towards the end of 2021, we launched our new application for investors on these platforms. And what you can do there is a, we offer a portfolio manager where you can view all of the assets that you've deployed across marketplaces in one spot. So you can see how your allocation breaks down across wine, across sports cards, across art, and really understand the dollars you've put to work. Not only understand the allocation, but also understand how your portfolio has performed. And along those same lines, on the application, you can view the performance of really any asset that's been offered fractionally what the status is, whether it's you know being offered for IPO now, if it's trading, if it is trading, how is it done across different time horizons? You can kind of dive down into different categories to get a feel for the average ROI in any given category on any given marketplace. You can check out our indices. So we have indices that track each subcategory in the space, as well as higher level indices that kind of track the overall fractional collectible space. So there's really a lot of different ways to slice data. And then coming with all of that is, that's kind of where where Bradley and I come in, is providing research and analysis around different offerings in space, providing commentary on performance, digging into trends, what's what's performing well, what's really lagging and why, you know, are those things that you should expect to continue or, or not? So for now, very kind of holistic platform in one-stop shop to understand your alternative asset investing journey. And as I alluded to, hopefully expanding that in the not too distant future to give you a greater context for the broader markets beyond fractional. Awesome. I think that's a great place to wrap it up. So thanks so much for your time, Dylan. And hopefully we'll get Bradley on here sometime when he has power and we'll connect again. But thanks for your time. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Bye-bye. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vent podcast, please email us at support at vent.co. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vent platform, find us at www.vent.co. That's www.vint.co. Vent and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circular as amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vent platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.